You know, so again, there, there will be key points in this story where you think, you know, was it good that we went to the hospital? Mm-hmm. You know, um, but that's what we did. We finally got to the hospital. We got him around. He looked good. And we got, you know, just things going. We stayed in the hospital for a couple of days. And so a couple of days into being in the hospital, they were like, there's something going on with your son. His head is way bigger than the rest of his body. And that's when we kind of knew something was off. You are listening to Badass, a podcast where we hold authentic conversations about the most difficult experiences life can hold for us. We explore the transformative power of these events and what they teach us about ourselves and the world. I am your host, Mirabai Rose. Welcome to Badass. Today on Badass, we are speaking with Jeremy Goodrich. Jeremy first came to Bloomington, Indiana, where he now lives, for college, attending Indiana University. After marrying his first wife, Shannon, and spending a few years in Vermont, Jeremy moved back to Bloomington and began a career as a teacher. Jeremy taught elementary school students at Harmony School for 13 years. In the midst of his tenure as a school teacher, Jeremy and Shannon were divorced, and he met and fell in love with his current wife, Mackenzie May. Mackenzie started her own independent insurance business, Shine Insurance, in 2013. Jeremy eventually joined Mackenzie at Shine, where he now specializes in teaching real estate investors how to protect themselves. He has a podcast called Managing Commercial Real Estate Risk. Today on Badass, Jeremy shares with us a story of surviving the unthinkable. Over a six-year period of time, Jeremy lost both his son, Noah, and his daughter, Stella, to a rare genetic condition. We will explore the experience of profound loss and the ways in which we harness our intuitive wisdom to survive such a loss. Welcome, Jeremy. I'm so glad you could join us. Mirabai, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for letting me be a part of this journey that you're on with this show. And um, I'm excited to just share this story and help listeners you know, understand one kind of experience, how it went down, how I navigated it, and maybe they can take from this conversation. I have no idea what they can take from this conversation, but hopefully there will be lots of value there. Yeah, well, there is a ton of value in people telling stories that are about vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And I think we all have moments where we are feeling really vulnerable and it helps us connect to one another. Mm Mm-hmm. So yeah. there is always value there. Yeah. So in terms of your story, we're going to start in 2003. At that time, you were married to your first wife, Shannon, and you were expecting your first child, a son who would be named Noah. Mm-hmm. And at that time, Shannon was pregnant, and you were living in rural Vermont, and the two of you had decided to do a home birth, and you were going to use a midwife. And so I'd just love to start with asking you about, you know, the pregnancy and, you know, becoming a father for the first time and what that was like for you. Yeah. I mean, we were, and so we're from Bloomington, Indiana. Shannon, my first wife, grew up here. I was, I had come to college here and we had just graduated from college and gone to Vermont on like an AmeriCorps program. Um, so we were out of our element a little bit, right? We were in a rural place, not a ton of friends, had just done the AmeriCorps thing. I had started teaching and we were super excited to have a a child. And, um, the pregnancy was really, really straightforward. I mean, we wanted to do a midwife from the beginning. We met with a midwife from the beginning. We probably only met with her three or four times before the pregnancy, just making sure things were good. But she was very like, uh, non-medical, mm-hmm. you know, like she didn't even have a stethoscope. She had like this wooden thing that she would like put to her ear. Mm-hmm. It probably was a stethoscope. It was just like a different type of stethoscope. Right? Yeah. So the whole thing was very, um, you know, truly uh, rural in the way that we approached it and very midwife. I don't know how to say that any different way, but um, yeah, it was a really organic experience. Yeah. And, and very non-medical. And, and so, and we were super cool with that. We were excited to have the birth at home. And, you know, 
the pregnancy was uneventful, mm-hmm. I guess is the answer to that question. Yeah, nothing to indicate that anything was wrong. Right. Yeah. yeah absolutely. So then go into the birth. You want mm-hmm. me to, to, to go into that? Yeah, okay. yeah. Tell us a little bit about the birth. And, you know, I know just from knowing a bit about your story that it was the birth. You know, that was the time where you started to understand that something might not be right. Yeah, 100%. So, you know, we, we, uh, she went into labor. We, she, it was on her due date, I think. And we kind of went on a long walk because she was just ready to have this baby. And the, the mountains of Vermont, you know, the wind was blowing. There had been like a hurricane that came in south of us or something like that. So by the time it got to us, it was just a big windstorm. So big windstorm, howling wind, you know, and then her water breaks. And so we call the midwife, you know, we have the midwife come over. And the midwife, when she first walked in, just started to... We started realizing some things, and I'm not sure we realized this right at the, at the birth point, but, you know, she started really trying to make um, Shannon, like, lay down. Like, Shannon was having this labor pain, and she just wanted to be, like, moving. And the, she was just really trying to make Shannon lay down, and that doesn't have anything to do how, with how, what turned out to happen during the birth, but um, it was just kind of weird. There yeah. was an element that was just different. You know, we were supposed to have a birthing tub. It never showed up. There were just some things like that. And so we finally get through all of that and get to the moment of birth. And when uh, Noah was born, he was blue. He wasn't breathing. Like there, there was an immediate like, you know, something's wrong here. And so, you know, we started getting warm towels and she kind of took Noah, uh, the midwife did, and was kind of trying to get him going. And he w- was turning, you know, he was looking a little bit better mm-hmm. and then would look a little bit worse. So he was right on the edge of not making it at this birth point. And we'd never done this before. We right. had no idea, you know, how all this works. So you just go into sort of go mode. Yeah, and, and so, this was not what you had imagined. And, and no. And so the one thing that we didn't know that we learned fairly quickly in this part about our midwife is she was anti-medicine. She did not believe in medicine at all. And I don't have any problem with that. But I do feel we should have known that before the date of right. birth. Right. And we didn't. Yeah. And so there was a point where we were like, we need to get to a hospital. We're 45 minutes from a hospital. Yes. This kid's not coming around. And she resisted us. And so that was kind of weird. Yeah. And then another midwife showed up like two or three hours after he was born. And walked in the room, looked at the situation, and was like, we need to get to the hospital right now. Mm-hmm. And got us in cars, put oxygen on him, mm-hmm. which helped a lot. Good. Um, and, you know, so again, there, there will be key points in this story where you think, you know, was it good that we went to the hospital? Mm-hmm. You know, um, but that's what we did. We finally got to the hospital. We got him around. He looked good. And we got you know, just things going. We stayed in the hospital for a couple of days and the doctor, you know, was like, so there's something going on with your kid. To this point, we didn't even know there was anything wrong. We thought we'd had a bad birth or, uh-huh. you know, like just didn't go well or something like that. Yeah, after he'd pinked up and started looking healthy. Yeah. You kind of breathed that sigh of relief. Yeah, he was fine. And so a couple of days into being in the hospital, they were like, there's something going on with your son. His head is way bigger than the rest of his body. And that's when we kind of knew something was off. Mm-hmm. And so we were like, okay, you know, and so we went from the rural hospital that we were at in um, Hardwick, Vermont, to the uh, Burlington Hospital, which was sort of the bigger hospital, and did a couple of weeks of testing and things of that nature, and ultimately came to the conclusion that he had achondroplasia, which is dwarfism. They thought he was a little person. Yeah. And so we were like, well, okay, you know, like, yeah. you know, there's lots of, uh, folks with that in the world and we'll navigate it and you know if someone was to be born to any parents we'd be great parents for that kind of thing you know whatever i don't know we were navigating that and so um you know we really thought that was his story for the first year and a half of his life wow so we just thought he had dwarfism and every time he got a cold we would end up in the hospital for a week mm-hmm. i got to know all the hospitals in vermont and what the which ones had good food and when to go at the right time and how to get the free tickets to get free food if they pay you know like i got i worked the hospital circuit of vermont over the course of the first year and a half of noah's life and it was an unusual first year and a half yeah but it was it was fine, mm-hmm. you know. We just did what we needed to do. He didn't 
start crawling when he should have. He couldn't hold himself up like most kids can at a certain age. He didn't hit any of the markers mm. that he should have hit. But we thought, well, that was pretty normal and pretty straightforward. But then at some point, you start to realize that there might be something more going on other than dwarfism. Yeah, so he, so when he was about a year and a half, we uh, decided to come back to Bloomington for Christmas. So my, uh, my parents live in Indianapolis. Shannon's mom lives here in Bloomington, Indiana. And Noah got really sick right like two days before we were leaving. And then he really was like very sick when we were supposed to head to the airport. Mm -hmm. And so we made a decision and we just said, let's just go. Let's get to home to our parents. Let's just get there. And when we landed in Indianapolis, my dad and mom picked us up and we're just like, we need to go straight to the hospital. Like mm -hmm. this kid looks bad. And so we went to Riley Children's Hospital in Indianapolis and checked him in there. And again, we'd checked in many times to hospital. Right. You were old this pros at this time. <laughs> not particularly unusual. He was sick. He wasn't looking good. We kind of knew that. We would have taken to him to a hospital in Vermont, but we just wanted to get home and then go to a hospital. Yeah. And so we go to the hospital. Within 24 hours, we had a doctor come in the room and say, look, this is not dwarfism. We don't know what this is. We'll need to do some testing to find out, but we want to let you know right off that what you think is going on with your child is not. Wow. And so, um, you know, long story short, and then I can see what your questions are for it, but like we spent the next six months in Riley Children's Hospital. We never left uh, mm -hmm. after going in that first Christmas break. We never went back to Vermont, although we did when he was doing pretty well in the middle of that time. We flew back to Vermont, packed all our stuff and drove it back to Indiana. Yeah. Um, and our hope was just that we could get him out of the hospital and maybe he'd be okay. But over the course of that time, what the doctors found was he had a, a metabolic disorder. Mm. They couldn't say which disorder or whatever. But somehow, some way, food, while you need it to live, was also poisoning him. Oh. And so, you know, his metabolic construction, or whatever you would, would call it, um, was such that food was slowly poisoning him. Mm. And so he was just on this roller coaster of crashing and then kind of coming back up and then crashing and looking like it was all over and coming back up and crashing and coming back off. And, and so we went on this journey for that last six months until he passed away uh, on the 25th of May in 2005. Mm -hmm. So he was two years old. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. So. so going back to that, very kind of early time in the six months when you were just getting this news that, you know, this isn't a lifelong condition that you're going to be coping with, you know, that you felt like you were rolling with, you know, this first year and a half. But this is actually something that's very serious and mm -hmm. could cause him to lose his life. What was that like to digest that? That's a really good question. You know, I, I think that with all sort of this is the shift from like when you find out you, ha you have a child with special needs or something like that, that's a certain kind of tragedy. That's a certain kind of struggle. Yeah. That's a certain kind of issue you have to navigate. But w when you cross over from that to this is terminal, mm -hmm. likely terminal, um, it, it is a really, you know, it's just it's just a more intense version of the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. When we lose something, whether it's someone losing their life, which kind of is the ultimate loss, um, to losing something smaller, um, we go through, and you probably know more about this than I do, but, you know, you sort of go through this process of, is this real? Is it true? You know, that yes. like denial. And yes. then um, trying to make excuses you know, and as this story continues, um, we can talk about Shannon's approach to this and my approach to this because they're very different. Um, and, and I think that, um, but one is like, well, let's just keep our head down and go and see what happens. Mm -hmm. And so then you have a level of emotions, you have a level of depth, but you're always just kind of looking forward and creating blocks and barriers around your person and your soul and your psyche. Yes. So that you can just keep moving forward as if nothing bad was happening. And keep surviving. Yeah. And then there's another approach. I'm sure there's lots of approaches. But the other approach that I saw from Shannon as opposed to myself, because I sort of took that approach that I just described. Mm -hmm. 
And Shannon's approach was very much to like continue to be deeply in love with her child and continue mm-hmm. to believe that something could save the situation, that something could change, that in the end, maybe we'd find a solution. Maybe we'd find a doctor who could answer the question. Maybe we could adjust the situation and he could live through it. She very much held on to hope. And with Noah, you know, I held up on to some hope as well, but I think those are just really different approaches. And to me, honestly, the approach that Shannon took is much more admirable Mm. than the approach that I took, right? Because you're just saying, I'm going to release my emotions to this thing. I'm going to believe even if it hurts me. And for me, it was much more like, let's just keep emotions out of it. Not that I didn't cry or didn't have times, but it, it, and it also became, how can I support Shannon? Yes. Which sounds admirable and is, is good in, in, all, in lots of ways, but what it doesn't say is, how do I support myself? Mm-hmm. Right? And so I chose the path of focusing on her and her emotions and her mom and my parents and our friends and the nurse, you know, like, and that's what was comfortable to me. Yeah. And you know, Jeremy, sometimes we really do have to put a little distance between ourselves and emotions that would be related to such an extreme loss like that, Mm -hmm. just to survive, just to be able to wake up and face the the day that is coming, you know? Mm -hmm. And there's nothing, I don't don't know that right or wrong factors into these, you know, things. There's wrong if you, you know, if you've ever spent time in a hospital, you realize how many people just, especially children's hospital, you realize how many people just leave their kids there and never show up again. Mm. That's wrong. Mm -hmm. But as far as how you try and do the best you can Mm -hmm. to navigate a situation, there is no right or wrong way. I agree with you 100%. It's just like you navigate it the way you're going to navigate it. Yeah. Yeah. You had to keep getting up every day. Yeah. And I'm a doer. I'm a, I played sports my whole life. You know, I am a, so that fit my personality too. It was mm-hmm. like, you know, you just keep crushing until like someone tells you you lost. Yes. And then it's like, okay, well, I did the best I could and I lost anyway. So I, I think yeah. I sort of took that approach. Um, but we lived at a Ronald McDonald house. Like, mm-hmm. again, we didn't have a house, a place to live in Indianapolis, right? You know, so we lived in a Ronald McDonald house for that six months and uh, really experienced for the first time in my life, how amazing it is when people come together to support you. I think I've, and I've seen this multiple other times in life, but one of the best things that comes out of lots of types of tragedy is the rallying of a community around you. Absolutely. And like there wasn't Facebook then in 2005, or maybe it existed, but it wasn't like we used a website called Caring Bridge where we could type things and people could type back. It was basically a pre-social media version of social media and we, I mean, that was our everything. Yeah. And the community of people coming together in that space and the comments in that space and just um, the big takeaway for me was just how powerful people are and how loving people are. Yes. And, you know, the community that came from that. Yes. Yeah. Humanity is so multifaceted and so often in the news or, you know, in life we're hearing stories about people, you know, the kind of darker, more Mm -hmm. difficult (laughs) aspects. But I do, I do resonate with that, you know, having been through a few, you know, difficult experiences myself, that there are these times where your community comes through and really holds up the mirror to the beautiful parts of humanity, Mm -hmm. the, the compassionate parts and the, the generous parts. Um, And it really is something to be held in that. Yeah, and I think for you know for your listener who's trying to say, well, could you know how would that work with me? I mean, you have to let them, mm-hmm. which means you have to tell the story one yeah. way or another. You have to present that story socially. Now, social media obviously is in an entirely different place than it was twenty years ago, but you know how are you going to share? How are you going to let people in? And sometimes it's exhausting. I mean, oh yeah, you know. I, I, so I think you you can choose to just shut down your story. And not tell anyone. And maybe that's okay. Everybody's different, you know. But by te- by us telling the story, but by us typing those posts, by us putting it out to the world and just mm-hmm. communicating what was going on, we gave the community the ability to rally around us. And it was magical. It was really beautiful. Yeah. 
So you were living on this roller coaster ride mm -hmm. in that six months that he was crashing and coming back and crashing. Yeah. That must have been so exhausting. Yeah. I, I mean, you sort of get, it is exhausting. I mean, there was a point where we, before we tried to just decided to move back, we thought maybe we could get him on like a medical plane and get him back to Vermont. And then we were like, okay, he's never going to be stable enough to do that. Maybe we can just get him out of the hospital and get him down to my parents' house or, mm -hmm. you know, so there were all these phases of, of the process. Yeah. I mean, I guess it is exhausting. I don't know. Like you just, again, my approach was that you just like did it. Yeah. And you just went and you, like, we got really good at medical language and rounds and showing up with doctors. And, and so now we're studying medicine and essentially, yeah. you know. It's like you didn't and, even have the bandwidth to be aware of how exhausted you were. Wow, I, I think that's right. And I think that's maybe important, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and, and again, there were times of tears. There were times of total exhaustion. There were times of uh, all that kind of stuff, but it just became our life. Mm -hmm. And so it was just part of what we did. Yeah. And, but the emotional ups and downs, but again, I kind of tried to protect myself from that a little bit. Yeah. Um, or just focus on helping uh, Shannon go through that. At what point did you realize that Noah really wasn't going to make it? Well, there were enough times that he almost didn't, that we, you know, there were multiple times that we were like, um, he's not going to make it this time, you know, mm -hmm. like uh, you, you, people code in a hospital, which means yeah. like there's something's dropping, something's going very wrong. Everyone runs in the room. You know, it's very sort of scary and anxiety written as they try and save the life of a human. Mm -hmm. And um, that happened over and over again. Mm -hmm. And so the first time it happened, you, you know, like you start to just think, is this one it? Mm -hmm. And then you keep doing that. Yeah. Um, but he, every time he came back up, it was a little bit less up. And mm -hmm. so we could sort of see where it was going. And then he, at the end, he kind of went slowly. It mm -hmm. wasn't a, you know, like code. And then he had passed away. Mm -hmm. It was, we were seeing things and the doctors were able to say, look, it's not going to be much longer. Mm -hmm. It's just, and so we were just keeping him comfortable and basically deciding when we wanted to let him go. Yeah. Um, and during that process, one of the things we learned as well was, you know, me and Shannon made a decision that whoever wanted to do the most to save him, mm -hmm. that's what we would do. Mm -hmm. Because in those types of situations, you have all these decisions to make. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're life and death decisions. Yeah. And so we just went with that approach. And I think it's really hard because if you shift to the doctors and the nurses and the people who do this every day, right? I just experienced this as one person navigating this, this loss. But, you know, how they coach people to do things matters. Yes. Because if you say something's possible, mm -hmm. a mom or a dad is going to say, do it. Of course, yeah. And I think there are times when that goes a little bit too far. Yeah. Um, and as this story continues, I, I think there's some times when we cross the line. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Noah did pass away. Yep. And the two of you ended up in Bloomington after that, right? That, yeah, that's right. So when Noah passed away, uh, the doctors, you know, were very much like, this was a fluke. Like we can't answer what it, what it is and, uh, or what it was, but you know total fluke. One of the doctors was very adamant, like go out and have more kids. That's going to be the best way to get over this, which mm. I don't know if that's good advice or not, but that, you know, so that was kind of, as we left the hospital, that was the thought. Mm -hmm. I got the job teaching at Harmony School after mm -hmm. uh, Noah passed away and uh, started teaching at Harmony in Bloomington. And um, Shannon was, uh, got a job waiting tables and started to go to nursing school. Um, and uh, so that is sort of how we progressed. And so we were, yes, we were in Bloomington sort of recovering from that loss. Yeah. And how did you feel about the advice to just go and have another kid? Well, I, I mean, I guess it was comforting because you're like, well, okay, that wasn't, 
what you worry about is it's like some genetic connection or something like that. Like you can't have any more kids or something like that. And so I, that uh, advice was comforting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we sort of took it with a grain of salt. Um, uh, Shannon wanted to have another kid right away. I did not. I was, you know, I was just like, I didn't really know what to do or what to want, but I knew that that was awful and something, you know, I didn't know how to recover from. Yeah. And so we really focused on gardening and I focused on teaching and um, we really moved on with our life, but we did not decide to get pregnant again for a little while longer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you did get pregnant again. We did. Yeah. So um, we decided, you know, it really, at some point, Shannon was like, I need to know whether we're going to have another child because I, I want to have another child. So I said, okay, well, you know, and so we got pregnant. And of course, we were super skittish in this situation. And no midwives, even though, it, you know, that midwife situation was a very specific situation to that midwife and does not reflect all midwives in any way, shape or form. Yes, yes. Um, but we were just not going to do that again. It was right. a hospital birth. We had a doctor, an OBGYN that we, she was going to consistently. And uh, everything was good. Everything was good all the way through uh, the pregnancy um, uh, until she went into labor. Mm, when, she, did, when was that? So, uh, well, now we're in, so Noah died in 2005. Um, uh, and Stella, who is our daughter, was born in 2007. So Shannon went into labor four weeks early. Oh. So that was the first sign and so Shannon went into labor, and so we went to the hospital. We had Stella, and she looked terrible. Mm-hmm. She looked terrible from the very start, even though the entire pregnancy was was fine. As soon as she was born, it was clear to me and I think to everyone else, like, holy cow. Wow. We're doing it again. Yeah. And Stella was, so Stella's story is a two-year story as well. And Stella was worse the whole time. And so, um, you know, Stella was in the hospital for, of the two years that she lived, um, for a year and a half of that time. Yeah. I mean, we had no sort of normal time. Um, So we lived at the Ronald McDonald House for a year and a half and went through this whole story. And I'm happy to dig deep into this story as well. I think one of the most important things for us and for just navigating tragedy and what it means was happened very early in Stella's life. Mm-hmm. I just put up walls. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, you yeah. know, and no one knew it was the same thing because no one knew what Noah had. Yeah, like they knew a basic premise of what it was, but um, they didn't know what he had, so they didn't know what she had, but it didn't. You know, it didn't matter to me at all, mate. So I really put up walls. I was like, I'll do the dad thing. I'll do all of the things I have to do. I'll be a good husband and all that kind of stuff. But I'm not falling in love with this kid. Yes. I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that to myself again. Yeah. And to Shannon's credit, she did the opposite again. Mm-hmm. She believed that it was going to be okay. She believed if we could find a solution that we could help Stella live mm-hmm. and she fell in love with Stella in the same way that she fell in love with Noah. Mm-hmm. And that created a, a, a split in us that was never resolved. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I loved that she did that. Yeah. I, I, I thought it was amazing. I just couldn't. Absolutely. It just wasn't uh, something I was willing to expose myself to yeah. or whatever. You wanted your daughter to have love. You just couldn't, you know, make yourself that vulnerable again. Yeah. Yeah. And so we navigated Stella in many of the same ways as we talked about with Noah, you know, but everything was just tougher. Mm-hmm. It was tougher emotionally. Yeah. It was tougher on our relationship. It was tougher to make decisions. And Stella's, the way that she presented her stuff was much tougher. I mean, she would just turn blue out of nowhere Mm. and just look like she was going to die. We'd be at home and like call an ambulance and the ambulance would show up. And at some point she would just like pink up and start smiling. Wow. And there was like no answer to why there was no, 
it didn't matter if she had oxygen or no oxygen. So, I mean, and it got, you know, for your listeners, I, I don't think it's, I, there were just a lot of details about it that yeah. were just much uglier and scarier. And this idea of a roller coaster, those things that we had experienced with Noah of, oh my gosh, this is the end. Oh wait, no, it's not the end. He's smiling and laughing and, and happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and both of them had that. They were always happy. Like, we were very conscious of whether they were in pain. Mm-hmm. And at least how they presented was, you know, not in pain. And we took that obviously yeah. very seriously. But there would be these just like near death and then, oh, okay, everything's fine now. Yeah. And you're just supposed to emotionally recover. And with Stella, I mean, let's say that happened with Noah 10 times in his life. You know, with Stella, it probably happened 100. Wow. And then she would always come back. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it was just... Like, you know, it was, it was, I don't know, I've, it was hard. Yeah, it, it sounds just, like kind of living a life where any moment could turn horrifying. Yeah. And you just didn't know when it was going to happen. Yeah. And even in the hospital, it continued, mm-hmm. you know, and so it wasn't, it, I mean, yeah, it was, it was, any. so we tried to have her at home for some time at the beginning of her life for the first few months mm-hmm. um and then it it was just like we're constantly going back to the hospital right and then we made a decision with her that i think comes back to this conversation around medicine and the responsibility of doctors and where you're at mm-hmm. and uh at some point the doctors were saying well part of why we think she's crashing like she is is she has a floppy airway and that's closing and that's causing the crashes. And then when that opens back up, you know, then she's fine and everything's good. So you could trach her, which is a tracheotomy mm-hmm. where you, you bypass, you know, and, and put um, basically the capacity to breathe um, mm-hmm. uh, below the back of your throat and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think that was kind of the biggest mistake we made because we extended her life by probably a year when we did that. And we just, it was sort of like we gave the medical community the capacity to keep her alive in different ways than we would have been able to had we not made that medical decision. Yeah. And, you know, like I said earlier, we always made the decision that, that uh, between the two of us, whoever wanted to do the thing that was the most, we didn't want anyone after they passed away to feel like we could have done something. Right. And have to ha- have that on their shoulders. Yeah. And I just don't know if the doctor should have offered us that solution, knowing what they knew and what the outcome possibilities were. Mm -hmm. But then I also don't know if they should have not offered that, because what are they supposed to do? Not offer a life-saving thing that could potentially... So I I don't have the answer, but I do think that once we traked her, um, it really extended her life for a long time and and if that was a happy and healthy life then that would be okay and i think it was for the most part um but i know there was some pain there too and that's my my concern but you know again i don't look back at these these processes and feel like i could have done anything different mm-hmm. or have any guilt or i think a lot of things that people struggle with and experience i feel like we did what made the most sense for every decision we had to make as two 20 something year olds just trying to figure out what the heck to do Right. So, yeah, so Stella lived until uh, 2009. Mm-hmm. And um, Shannon and I uh, split up during that time. We both decided that uh, it was best if we split up. And um, so then about a year and a half later, um, Shannon had met another person and was dating that person. And I met my current wife, Mackenzie. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so we... Uh, Mackenzie met Stella before she passed away, shortly before she died. And so um, sort of the end of this story is the beginning of the next part of my life, which is much more boring and happy and just normal and um, straightforward. And I mean, I was a teacher. And then, you know, now, like you said at the beginning of the show, I own an insurance agency. Like how much more straightforward and just, you know, yeah, I want to say boring because it's not boring, but, you know. I'm curious about how how you bridge those two lives, you know, because there had to have been a period where you were still trying to make sense of this thing you've just been through. This, you know, sounds like about mm-hmm. six years where 
you lived through, you know, one of the more horrifying and tragic things a person could experience. And then you're sort of suddenly in this new life. And I'm curious about what that was like for you. I think that's such a good question. I think it's a question that I'm still answering. You know, like this thing did happen and I don't mind talking about it. I would like to talk about it more. I really am glad that you're having me on the show talking about it because for me, it's processing, right? For someone who chose to keep his head down, not get emotional and just make it through. The downside of that is that you never necessarily process very well, right? Like I always was a little jealous of Shannon for her collapses and emotional, you know, like that she would have and just really, really dark, dark places, especially after Stella passed away and her and I um, haven't talked actually since the day of Stella's uh, memorial. Mm. Um, And so, but I just know that she's had really a lot more emotion which then has brought her up from that. She became a nurse at at Riley Children's Hospital. Oh wow! And she's been a nurse there for about a decade, right? Yeah, so she helping took parents through this. I mean, who better to be a nurse for those parents that are navigating these kinds of things for than someone who can tell that story? Yeah. Say, I know exactly where you're at right now. Yeah. And so she took this experience and not only I think emotionally processed it in a a much deeper way than I have still, Um, but also made something out of it that was concrete in her life, right? Mm -hmm. That that became this. I went through this tragedy that made me who I am now and I can help other people go through that tragedy. And I think for me, it's a little bit like I made it through and then I shut it down. And I I don't want to say that I don't, I still think about Noah and Stella all the time. I still celebrate their birthdays and and death days. I still go to their trees and I still, you know, um, and uh, Mackenzie does a great job of sort of helping me Mm -hmm. do that and making sure I do that. Um, But it's really hard. Your question was, how have I melded these two lives? Mm -hmm. And I guess if I'm really honest with you and your listeners, it's sort of like I, t- I took that thing and I just kind of shut it down and moved on. Yeah. And um, the pro to that, as with this whole story, is that it made it easier to navigate. You know, it made there less of a ups and downs and more just kind of go forward. Mm-hmm. Um, the con of that is it's very, I think so much about how how do I tell this story? How do make how do I make this story matter in my life? How do I make it matter in other people's lives? How can I help other people? And I don't have good answers to that. We're what 13 years since Stella passed away. And I've told the story many times. Some of my artwork has depicted a lot of um the moments in the journey. Yeah. Um, but you know, it still is is hard to make meaning out of that experience. So that yeah. wasn't a great answer to your question because the the answer is I don't, I, I'm still working, I'm still trying to figure it out, you know? I think it was a really great answer because I think a lot of people cope like that. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, once they get out of a really terrible situation, just wanna let that be the past. Yeah. And you sound like you do have some self-awareness about acknowledging these children were a part of your life and you're here telling the story. Yeah. But I, I actually think that's a, a really common way that people cope. And I think it's important that we acknowledge all the ways that people cope. You know, there's no one way. Yeah, I guess that's right. You know, you think about people who cope with tragedy by just completely pushing it out to mm-hmm. the point that sometimes they don't remember it themselves, right? And then all the way to a story like Shannon's where you integrate it into what what it means to be a human being for you. Yeah. And yeah. I guess you're right. I'm somewhere in the middle of those two things, which is what I am on just about everything. I do these personality tests and it's just like a straight line. You know, some people are like <laughs> up and down. I've got lots of this and I have none of that and all that kind of stuff. You know, yeah. mine is like. Mer. And um, I don't know. But I, I think I think about that story a lot, as I said. And not only that I would have 
an 18 year old and a 16 year old mm -hmm. and what they would be like. And, you know, I think a lot of people who've lost kids imagine where they would be in life and what that would be like. I just always, I mean, it would be terrible. They would, I mean, I guess if I could think about like a healthy kid, had my children been born healthy, mm -hmm. what would be, they be like right now? What would it be like to look at someone? Like, I don't know what it's like to look someone in the face and see myself. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I did when they were alive, but you know, like look at, watch someone grow and, and right. be able to see yourself or a mannerism that you have, that they have, you know, or, you know, I've never experienced those things because of this loss. Now I have experienced being a dad. Um, I'm a, a dad to Mackenzie's son. I'm his stepdad and I've been in his life since he was two. And so I've, I've had the pleasure of, of getting to be a dad to a child who now is 16 years old yeah, and um, is just a great kid, have a great relationship with him. And I feel really, really lucky uh, to have that as a part of my story. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I've, I've never really looked at those two and wished they were still alive because I just feel like that feels painful for them. Right. Their lives were full of so much struggle. Yeah. And so there's not, I, I can't imagine. And I, I, this is one of the things I noticed too in hospitals and with people talking about tragedy is you're always looking at someone else's story and being like, I can't imagine that. Mm -hmm. Like no matter how bad your story is, I just told maybe, you know, I lost two kids, one right after, like I don't, you know, a lot of people say, I don't, I can't think of what's worse than that. I could list off 10 things because I saw them all in the hospital yeah. and, and, and I was like, oh, at least I'm not them. And it's such an interesting human characteristic yeah. that no matter how bad your, your situation is, or no matter, you know, you're like, at least I'm not that, you know? Yeah. And, and what I was going to say, which brought me to that, was I'm so glad that there's nothing that I did yes. that created that. And I think for listeners out there who f maybe feel that, oh, I could have done this thing different or I could, you know, it, it, things happen the way they happen. And you, I think you have to cope with that. I don't, I don't have good advice for that person because I feel like I'm fortunate to not have to navigate that. I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, everything that happened just happened, made the best decisions I could, and I don't have to feel like I could have done something different. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so when I look at th that story is the one that I'm like, I'm glad I'm not, that feels terrible to say though, because someone listening may be in that situation and that's so, um, you know, they may look at mine and be like, I'm so glad it wasn't this. I think we all do that. That's I what, you know, do. tragedy is. Yeah, I think we do. You know, something I'd love to circle back to that, um, you know, one way I think you, are being useful today and telling your story is uh, you were highlighting just the way in which the medical community doesn't always really encourage you to just let someone go, mm -hmm. right? When somebody has a terminal illness, to just allow them to go because that will be the outcome eventually. Right. And it sounds like even, you know, in your heart, there are sort of uh, some moments where you were even sort of wrestling with, would it have even been better had we not gone to the hospital when Noah was born and he had just gone? So it, I feel this sense that, you know, you have, you know, some understanding of the gift of letting somebody go. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's that's interesting to me. I used to be a hospice social worker. And so seeing people who had fought and 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 then finally came into hospice and died very quickly mm -hmm. you know and those situations tended to be pretty chaotic and difficult and then the people who sort of early on went this is a terminal illness i'm just gonna i'm just gonna live the days i have and try to make them the best and and the contrast between the two and I just think that's something we don't talk about a lot in our culture. And so I'm really glad that you brought that up as, as part of your story. I, I would imagine it's especially hard with a kid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's kind of being a badass, right? Is to be like, I understand what's going on here and I'm going to take the time I have and navigate it in the best way for me, for my family, for my community. That's I don't know how someone does that. And like you said, once... Once you cross over, 
before you truly cross over, there's really a piece that comes with that. Once you're in a hospice program, everybody's on the same page. Mm -hmm. We know what's happening here. These things that could save or invade or make longer or stretch out are not available anymore, and we can just make peace with the thing we're navigating. And in defense of the doctors, before we did the tracheotomy, they did say, you need to go home and let your daughter go. And we took her home. And the next crash, we just couldn't do it. We couldn't yeah. not call 911. We couldn't call yeah. not call the ambulance. And so we ended up back in the hospital. Yeah. And that's when they opened up more of the things that we could do. And so they really did say, go home. Mm-hmm. And we didn't listen. Yes. And I don't really know what else. So, you know, this is the dichotomy of medicine, right? Yes. But I like how you put it, this idea of once you cross the line into hospice, you know, there's just a real peace there. And I don't think as humans, we really know how to, na- I guess maybe just everyone navigates it different. There's not a right answer. They do. They do. And I, I just, am, I mean, just putting myself in your shoes when Stella was just a baby, just a tiny vulnerable baby, and you're trying to take her home and you're trying to let her go. We have that parental instinct in us yeah. that we, you know, we'll do anything to keep our kids alive and i can just imagine even with me having a hospice background if i had a baby in my arms in that situation i i think i would really struggle i don't know like i don't i don't know what the right answer is and we did what we thought was right and i don't have any negative feelings about that but Mm -hmm. it's complicated because we can do a lot Uh, medicine can do a lot and whether it should or shouldn't it depends on the situation i guess Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But it was, you know, really important that the nursing staff and the doctors, the doctors are always a little less personal than the nursing staff, Mm -hmm. but those nurses became our friends. They're still our friends, you know, and and Shannon became colleagues with them. And, and, uh, you know, we, when Noah died, there were, I mean, 30 or 40 doctors and nurses outside of the room. And it was just really probably one of the sweetest moments, right? Like Aww. everybody stopped and were, was with us. When yeah. Was. Yeah. Again, that being held by a community. Yeah. 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 That was one of the, the neatest moments. Jeremy, this is just really is an incredible story. And I'm so grateful that you've been willing to talk about it so openly. Oh, it's absolutely. It's my pleasure. It's a story that, you know, things happen to you, right? Mm-hmm. Like I didn't, you know, I didn't choose. I chose to have a child. I didn't choose to go through all this, but I think it taught me a lot, made me who I am as a human and and certainly is a story that I really enjoy t- telling. And thank you for bringing all these stories to surface uh, for your listeners so they can hear how other people have navigated and know that no matter how they're navigating it isn't wrong. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming in. I really appreciate it. Everybody, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hello, badass listeners. This is Mirabai. I wanted to spend some time with you today. You and I are going to be together a lot this season as you listen to me have conversations with our guests, but there won't be too much of me telling my own story in those conversations. And so I thought it would make sense to talk to you a little bit about myself, a little bit about what I've been through, just to help you understand that this project for me is coming from a place that's very personal and these stories really resonate with me. You know, the first story that we are airing this this season, the one that you just heard with Jeremy Goodrich, Jeremy's talking about these awful decisions that we have to make during the course of a terminal illness. I mean, honestly, I, I feel like it's unimaginable when you're talking about children that young as Jeremy was, but I do feel like I have, you know, some context for what Jeremy was talking about in that I did spend some time as a hospice social worker. Um, I worked as a hospice social worker for about four years. So I did get a chance to be a part of a lot of those really difficult decisions that we have to make at the end of life. And, you know, when I was talking with Jeremy, I was really flashing back to uh, so many of those times where 
families are in this this tough position where they have to kind of make the choice to stop intervening. And I think so often we think that that choice is the choice to kill someone. But really, this person, you know, already has a terminal illness. There is something that is already killing them. And so sometimes uh, that choice is actually to give them a little bit better quality of life for the days that they have. But it's a hard choice to make. A really hard choice when, when it's somebody that you love dearly. So I was so glad that we were able to bring that to you and, you know, kind of begin a conversation. And I hope that you listen to this episode and that you continue the conversation, that you talk with your family about what you might want if you did have a terminal illness, if there wasn't going to be an option for you to recover. Um, I hope that if you have had a loss, that this episode allows you some time to connect with that loss and the importance of that person in your life and maybe reach out to somebody else who was impacted by that loss. I think that Jeremy's story is just so deeply connecting because death is so universal. We will all experience it and we will all lose someone at some point. And so these, these stories that, that give us some language for it feel really important to me. As we move through our season, we're going to have many other stories. We have some stories of injury and illness that have really changed people's lives. We have people who lost almost all of their abilities. Uh, we have guests who, you know, went from, you know, workaholic, uh, walking, talking, you know, overachieving social worker to not being able to string a sentence together because of a traumatic brain injury, uh, not having the energy to do more than make one cup of tea before having to go back to bed. These kind of shifts in our lives, in our abilities are so profound. And, you know, what it really brings up is these issues around personal identity, right? If you can't do any of the things that you kind of see yourself uh, as doing well, right? It's so hard uh, to be in that situation. And, you know, for so many of these uh, sudden illnesses, injuries that are that dramatic, we also don't know when exactly they're going to end. We don't, we don't have an end point. And this, this is another theme that's emerging in this season that is just really resonant for me personally, uh, because I had a, a really bad case of Lyme disease. And I mean, <laughs> off the charts, off the charts. I mean, and Lyme disease is, is pretty horrible. I'm, you know, I, I hope listeners out there, I hope that you are getting some decent information about Lyme disease because certainly like many, many other people who've had Lyme disease have had just a God awful time of it. Um, but for me, it just had a very dramatic beginning. I was infected by two different bacteria and um, I just because of the, the way my first symptoms began, I was given medication that actually suppressed my immune system and allowed the bacteria to really run rampant and then uh, had either an immune response or my nervous system was impacted. Different doctors over the years have had different theories, um, but I did end up paralyzed, fully paralyzed. Paralyzed to the point where my breathing muscles didn't work. And I actually was kind of slowly losing the ability to breathe in the emergency department. Uh, and 
thank goodness, um, I was in the emergency department when that did happen. And I was able to be placed on a ventilator. Um, but, you know, it was, it was a really, really intense experience. And because Lyme disease is what it is, the doctors didn't know that that was what was happening. And um, after I was discharged from the hospital, I was still very, very sick. And for six months, uh, nobody could tell me what exactly was happening with my body. And because the medical community couldn't come up with a diagnosis that made sense, they began to tell me that I was mentally ill, that I had a a psychological illness, and uh, that, you know, my brain, my my psyche was manifesting symptoms um, that I wasn't coping with, hadn't been coping with stress well. when it all started. And that struck me as crazy um, because at that time in my life, I had discovered yoga and I had um, dropped one day of work a week so that I worked less hours and I was just really working on my self-care. And and so, you know, it didn't make any sense that this would be stress-related And so I, you know, I I kept looking for answers and I finally found them. I finally found a practitioner who was able to diagnose me with tick-borne illness. And we were able to do some laboratory tests that confirmed it. um, And I was able to get on treatment. And it did take 18 months for me to recover. And I still struggle. I mean, I, very few people, this is something that a lot of people don't understand about Lyme disease. Very few people who have had Lyme disease disseminate and become systemic. Very few people actually do recover fully from Lyme disease in their, if they're in that boat. Um, and so it's something that, you know, is always in the background that you're always kind of managing and living with and you know, thank goodness, I have found a lot of solutions. Um, I have a special diet that I stick to, uh, because if I go off of it, I get sick. And it really means a lot to me (laughs) to be able to use my body. Because when I'm sick, I'm really, really sick, like, you know, in a wheelchair, legs not working. Uh, Or sometimes I'm just you know, having weeks and weeks and weeks of nausea that makes me have the dry heaves every time I try to move, or maybe I have these severe headaches. It's just, it's a little whack-a-mole. It's a little game of whack-a-mole, Lyme disease. Uh, but it's it's always going to be a part of my life. And it gives me so much heart for the people who are struggling with chronic illness or recovering long recoveries from injuries you know I I really understand what it is to be in that position where everything in your life changes because you can't use your body and to be so dependent on other people and to not know when it's going to end you know I just I as I've listened to these interviews and and been you know speaking with these people, uh, that's just been something that uh, I really relate to. And I imagine that there are many of you who have gone through a long illness or, you know, had an injury that really impacted you for a while. Or maybe you know somebody who was really like taken down by something and maybe they're not the same anymore, you know. And I, I hope that these interviews can, you know, give you even more compassion for those people in your life and for yourself if you're in that boat. There's been a lot of interesting talk this season about therapy work and um, healing. And ultimately, you know, that is really Uh, what I hope that people take away from this show, because all of our guests have been through some pretty intense stuff. 
Some, some, sometimes like downright horrific, right? And they have all found a path to healing. And so, you know, that is actually why I wanted to bring this podcast to the world and to you was that we, we have been having a rough time of it, you know, uh, as a, as a nation, as the world, um, uh, you know, there have been so many things, not just COVID. I mean, COVID fucking sucks, right? <laughs> COVID sucks. Uh, and it's been devastating. It's been devastating to watch so many people lose their lives, um, the way in which it's changed our lives, our children's lives. And we've also just been through a lot that I know has made me question humanity, you know, children in internment camps and the rolling back of rights for people, um, the ways in which we've become so polarized that it somehow has become socially acceptable to be downright cruel to one another. And I think all of those things were making me feel as if, you know, I I wasn't so sure about humanity. I wasn't so sure, you know, that uh, we were gonna be okay. Um, But then, you know, I had my work as a therapist, and I was watching people who had been through really awful things heal. And I was watching them find this piece of humanity that was so compassionate. And I was watching them find compassionate communities. You know, as people heal, they tend to find themselves drawn to compassionate communities. And I was, um, you know, so moved by watching the hard work that people were doing in healing and then watching those moments where it was all coming together. And it made me realize that, you know, humanity is not lost. We, we are still here and we do have profound capacity for compassion, profound capacity for connection. And that, you know, one of, one of my, one of my favorite quotes, and um, I am a total lover of Mr. Rogers. <laughs> uh, and uh, he, you know, when he said, you know, he was talking about, you know, when scary things happen in the world, look to the helpers. And, you know, that, that has been such a theme in this show so far. Every single interview, uh, somebody has said, you know, this was so awful, but my community, they came forward, they held me. That was so profound. And so I, you know, I hope that watching people heal, that witnessing the resilience of the human spirit, that having that sense of community and the way that we can be there for each other affirmed, I hope that that gives you some hope as you go through, you know, this next period of time and who knows what it will hold. Uh, you know, it, the, the horror is not stopping. <laughs> it's not stopping. Um, but we do have each other. And there are people in the world that care, that really, really care. And you inside of yourself have nurturing parts of you, compassionate parts of you that can come in and offer you some solace. And so, you know, that is, you know, that is my hope for this show that, you know, that it won't be just a a huge bummer, right? <laughs> not just not just depressing, because um, I know these stories are are sad. But you know, they're also stories about people digging down deep and finding this incredible strength. And I I do hope that 
that that is uh, inspiring to you as you have to navigate whatever is coming our way next. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Badass, and I really hope that you come back. Our next episode is going to air June 24th, so stay tuned and continue to be your badass self. Badass would not be possible without the support of several people who have donated their skills to the show. First of all, Kevin Evans, who has volunteered a lot of his time recording and editing the show. Thank you, Kevin. Another big thanks to Austin Lucas and his record label Last Chance Records for allowing us the use of his original music. In addition, we would like to thank Kate Long and her band Rodeola for the use of their original music. Finally, a big thanks to the Badass Team's life partners, Alex and Amy, who have made do without us on weekends and evenings as we have been holed up working on the show. 